trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey there, and welcome to the show. I'm so glad you could join us today. I'm going to try to make it worth your while, meaning I'm going to do my best to inform and enlighten and not scare or anger. You may not believe it, but that is a really tough order these days. Because there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. I do want to mention our sponsors of the show and invite you to visit my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. By the way, i got to give a shout-out to Kendall Whiting. He is one of my sponsors. He's actually the owner of lifesavingfood.com. Uh, you can get a nice 10% discount if you buy food storage through him. And just mention the, the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. He also does some marvelous web design. And... Kendall has retooled my website. I'm very excited. There are some features that we're going to be adding here in the next few days, um, including membership, some options for members that uh, will give you access to exclusive videos and articles that uh, I will be producing for the the sake of people who become uh, a monthly member. I don't have any qualms or any, uh, you know, ideas in my mind that, uh, hey, this is going to be my ticket to Richville. I stopped, I stopped chasing fame and fortune quite a while ago. So in, in interest of full disclosure, two things came to my mind. I understand that fame, for what it's worth, is fleeting. It is not a forever thing, but impact is something that can last long after a person is no longer even around. So I make impact the number one goal anytime I sit down to do this show. Fortune, well, it would be nice, but uh, when you're going for impact, it's really not as necessary. So I'm just, all I'm trying to do is support my family, keep the wolf away from my door, and spread the message of personal liberty, freedom of conscience, the value of private property rights, and the, uh, the primacy of free market economics. If that's something that resonates with you, or if you find value or encouragement in this program, I would encourage you to consider becoming a member on my website or becoming a monthly patron or donor. I mean, for as little as five bucks a month, a dollar a month, you can go a long way towards helping me focus on what I do best, which is finding and disseminating the best information that I can. So it's an option. I just I want to give credit to to uh, to Kendall for all of his hard work. And also thanks to MonticelloCollege.org, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Very happy to have them as sponsors of the show. And we have some more exciting news coming up here within the next week or so. But I'm going to make you wait for that. In the meantime, I want to talk a little bit today about uh, how things are, are tipping and shifting for us right now. And if you are a person who, for instance, has you know put your foot down and said, you know what, I'm tired of being ordered about, mandated, you know, bullied and and pushed around by people who think that they know what are the best decisions I could be making for myself. First of all, you've been made to feel isolated. You've been made to feel alone. And I'm here. I exist, and this program exists to to reinforce you are not 
alone. And furthermore, even though you may be on the receiving end of some really unchristian behavior, that doesn't mean automatically that you're wrong. Right and wrong, surprisingly enough, don't depend upon, uh, well, what the majority believes, that's what's right and that's what's wrong. Now, you could probably make the case, and I guess I wouldn't argue, you know, um, what a society deems acceptable versus unacceptable, that can sometimes run with the majority. But in a free society, such as we believe ourselves to be, even the majority does not have the right to, to infringe on the individual's freedom of conscience, the individual's personal autonomy or self-determination. And we should never lose sight of that. We tend to get caught up in a lot of the labels, you know, left versus right, conservative versus progressive, and so forth. Democrat versus Republican. Those labels do not matter as much as the understanding that that the real conflict, the real rub, always seems to come down to some form of collectivism versus the rights of the individual. Now, what that means is it can be conservative-flavored collectivism. It can be Republican-flavored statism. It can be Democrat-flavored collectivism. If it's sacrificing the rights of the individual, because the majority of us think that we know best and we want to use government force or state force to make you do something, it's wrong. I don't care how well-intentioned. And it took me a while to to learn this. It took me a while to break out of that that idea that, well, you know, there ought to be a law about this because I disagree with it. I become very uh, circumspect in my application of of government power because I've realized that any time you say there ought to be a law, in effect, you are inviting a man with a gun to sit down at the table and to oversee the outcome of whatever that policy debate is. If we decide we're going to enact a law, then by gosh, we're going to use force to back it up. My friend Ken Nelson down at St. George used to used to say it's a good rule of thumb when you're going to propose a law. Ask yourself, would I be justified to kill a person? Me, myself, would I be justified in killing someone if I saw them doing whatever this is that the law is prohibiting? And if the answer is, well, no, then it doesn't become a righteous act the moment you hand it over to government. Here, government, you go do it. You make them stop, and if necessary, you kill them. As hard as that may be to believe, that is the logical progression of where government force leads. So to you, it might just be, well, it's just a law. It's just a, a regulation. It's just a statute or some kind of a, you know, a, a recommendation. No, if it comes with government force, it has a, a an enforcement mechanism. And that's always going to come down to if a person doesn't obey, eventually we're going to send guys with guns and badges to make you do it. If you resist, they will use increasing levels of force up to and including killing you to make it stick. Sorry, I've ripped off the the Band-Aid here, and that's that's what the state looks like under all those layers of pretty dressing and fluffy euphemistic words that assure us it's just there to reflect the will of the majority. The government is us. It's doing what we want it to do. No. No. It's about force. And that's why it's not to say that there should be no government whatsoever, only to say that it should be very strictly limited and to, to its involvement in cases where someone's 
rights are being violated or their property is being damaged. And even then, we still put restrictions on government. Things like due process. Things like probable cause. Things that restrict government from being abused as a tool to just hammer people we don't like into submission. Which brings me to uh, what we're going to be talking about today, because that's exactly what people are suggesting. I'm going to share a story with you. I saw this uh, earlier today. It's on a website called AntiEmpire.com, Anti-Empire.com. And it's titled, How My Wife Bravely Defied the Maskers. What makes this interesting is this is a story that's actually set in Israel. And I don't know if you've been following, but uh, Israel, they have had some very, very strict COVID policies. You can say whatever you want about the Israelis, but I'll tell you, they do not mess around. When it's a policy, they tend to, you know, they're, they're not afraid to use force where they think it's in the interest of protecting the public. Now, we're coming up on the break here, so I'm not going to have time to get into this before the break. But I I want to share this story with you because increasingly I'm realizing that the people that I consider heroes are not the people in three-piece suits. They're not even the people necessarily in uniforms who are, you know, carrying out the orders of those in three-piece suits. More often than not, my heroes are the common people like you and me who find themselves in a situation where they must stand up for their rights and are willing to do so. They're willing to stand and be counted even when it requires being treated like dirt. I know that's not for everybody. Even the masochists look at that and go, ooh, yeah, yeah I'm into pain, but not that much pain. <laughs> it's, it's an uncomfortable thing. Maybe you've experienced it yourself. I mean, think about over the last year, how many times did you walk into a store unmasked and have to endure, you know, the 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 looks of accusation, the guilt, you know, the whispered comments or sometimes shouted comments. Where's your mask? Sometimes people openly confront you. Sometimes people get physical about it. Stick around. I'm going to tell you the story of this Israeli woman who backed down the maskers. That included the police. I think you're going to like her story. And there's a huge lesson in here for the rest of us. Stick around. We'll get to it in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I want to share with you this article. This is out of Israel. How My Wife Bravely Defied the Maskers. And, and I think we need to hear about some of these heroes who stand up. And you don't, you don't even have to agree with them necessarily to, to recognize sometimes the right thing to do is the exact opposite of what everybody else is doing. And this is particularly when it comes to matters of your personal autonomy and maintaining that that sacred protection of your autonomy. Not very many people are willing to do it because we don't want to be the odd man out. We don't want to be the target. The author is named Rafi Farber. 
He says, today, August 11th, 2021, I went to the gym this morning. I live in Israel. I do not have a green pass. Means he's unvaccinated. Technically, I am not allowed into the gym. As I walk there, I'm thinking, what to do if the police prevent me from going? Do I go in anyway or back out, jump the fence and work out? Well, it turned out to be not an issue. Nobody was at the front desk, so I just walked in, did my workout, and left. He says, I walk home, and when I turn the corner to my street, I'm reading the Tower of Basil, so I'm not looking up. I hear my wife scream my name, and immediately my blood pressure shoots up. She's unloading groceries with my two oldest daughters, ages 9 and 11. Apparently, as I was working out at the gym, my wife was having a workout of the mind and soul at the supermarket. Rafi, they called the police on me. What? Is everything okay? Does this have a happy ending? I immediately want to know, is this a good or bad story? I've been constantly on edge for about 18 months now, and I'm in no condition to handle any sort of suspense at all. Everything's fine, said my wife. I breathe a sigh of relief. So what happened? Well, a bit of background. He says, my wife and I made a pact a while back. He says, we would not put on masks anymore for any reason. Not to keep a job, not to placate the police, nothing. The last time I put one on was for an interview to get a weapons license three months ago, and I had to annul vows for that. Why are we so adamant? Because it is time to set an example, and we are. Neither I nor my wife have ever gotten a ticket for not wearing a mask. I've been threatened, even booked and detained by police, but never ticketed. She begins the story. She's heading into the grocery store with her two oldest daughters. A guard stops her at the entrance and tells her she can't come in without a mask. She says, yes, she can, and she does not have to wear a mask. She simply walks past the guard. The guard follows her inside and continues to harass her. She continues shopping with an asinine back and forth about what the law is. Show me your exemption, says the guard. I don't have to show you anything, she insists, and keeps shopping. Now, he says, my daughters are witnessing all of this also unmasked. As this is going on, the manager of the store comes out and takes my wife's side, which was nice. If she says she doesn't have to wear a mask, then she doesn't have to wear a mask. Enough already. The guard slinks off. Meanwhile, random masked grocery shoppers continue to harass my wife in front of my kids. She ignores them all and keeps shopping. Then she gets to the self-checkout counter and starts scanning her stuff. She swipes her credit card. The machine says there's a problem. What a coincidence. And to call a clerk to help. A clerk comes and she says, sorry, this checkout isn't working. You'll have to start over and the police are coming. You'll have to put on a mask. No, I don't, says my wife. Then the store intercom starts blurring. The police are on their way. Everyone must make sure their mask covers both nose and mouth. So he says, my wife just stands there with my daughters. She can't leave because payment hasn't gone through. She suspects someone shut down the machine to pin her there as the police were coming. Plus, he says, my oldest just happened to have a bee sting on her foot from the day before that was swelling up again and needed to be iced. But my wife did not want to use that excuse to leave because it would look cowardly. It is time to stand up. So she just stood there calmly unmasked. People arrive outside the supermarket taking pictures. They do not come in. I'm sorry, the police arrive outside the supermarket taking pictures, but they don't come in. Still waiting. She's the only person unmasked in the entire store. 
The checkout machine comes back to life. A new screen pops up for a manager to swipe a card again. My wife calls the manager over. She swipes the card. The machine now says to swipe the credit card again. She does. The receipt comes out this time. Finished. So there she is now walking out of the store. My oldest's foot is in a lot of pain. She gets past the guard again and simply walks past the three policemen standing there. As she passes them, the guard says, that's her. That's her to the cops. But my wife just keeps walking to the car, two daughters in tow. They help her load the car and she drives off home. That's it. That's the whole story. Here's the lesson. This is all one big bluff. Our enemies, as he calls them, are empty shells. Evil is emptiness. And so he says, show no fear. Stare the bastards down. Keep your calm. They're nothing. He says, I would bet that nobody in my entire city has the sheer courage of my wife. I am blessed with the most amazing woman in the world. Now, I would say he is. He is definitely blessed to have someone who is is that committed to not knuckling under. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that if you're not willing to take that kind of stand, you're somehow less of a person. But I am going to very openly suggest that, man, we are at a we're at a place where if people are unwilling to stand up. We could very easily see what remains of our freedom scrubbed away. That's unacceptable. And so where where Rafi in here is saying, hey, you know, this is the time to stand. This is the time to be an example. I echo those words. And I say that not from the standpoint of, hey, go do this, and I'll sit back here and watch and see how it turns out for you. (laughs) I'm not asking you to do anything I wouldn't be willing to do myself and haven't been willing to do myself. It's too much of a price, I think, for a lot of people. If I can be perfectly honest, there are times where I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm willing to, I don't know if I'm willing to put up with this. And it's not like we're taking our lives in our hands, right? It's not like, oh my gosh, they're going to set on us like an angry mob. But it's still pretty tough. In fact, if I can confess something, this, this was probably the toughest thing for me. For a while, church was strictly done via video broadcast. In other words, it was all done online. This was when the lockdowns were really in effect last year. And I, I truly missed being able to go to church. And I just missed the, the, the company and the fellowship of my fellow you know congregation members. So I was very happy when we were uh, given the go-ahead. Yep, we're going to open up church. I mean, we divvied it up. Okay, A through L goes this Sunday. Next Sunday is M through, you know, the Z. But masks were, were very prominently a part of what people were doing. They were strongly encouraged. They were not mandated, but they were strongly encouraged. And maybe this won't surprise you. If you think I'm a troublemaker, this you'll just say, of course you did, Brian. I, I did not mask up. I would not mask up for church. That was one of the few places where I really felt like at least my freedom of conscience is still safe here. Now, that doesn't mean I went around glad-handing everybody, giving them hugs, you know, a kiss on the cheek. No, I was, you know, observing the, the social distancing protocols and whatnot. But to say it's uncomfortable to be one of the only adults, and, and there that first couple of times back to church, I was one of the only people in the whole congregation, aside from maybe a 
child under two that uh, wouldn't keep their mask on. I didn't put on a mask. And it wasn't so much that I was on the receiving end of, you know, scolding and, and, and shouted epithets and, and, and disapproval. I think for me, the hardest part was I could see in the eyes of my fellow congregation members almost a kind of sorrow. Like they were thinking to themselves, oh, look, Brother Hyde has gone apostate. He's being disobedient. And the worst part was eventually I just kind of became invisible to them. You know how you don't see homeless people? Yeah, that kind of selective blindness because my unmasked face... I guess was uh, was not a was not a pretty thing to behold. Okay, that's not surprising. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I am so proud to have them as sponsors of this program. And if you are, for instance, if you are looking for a mortgage within the state of Utah, that's exactly where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage can help you. Now, you can see their offices at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. You can call them at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Look, it's the hottest real estate market in anybody's memory. Properties don't stay on the market for very long. You've got to have your financing squared away from a VA loan to traditional loan to reverse mortgages or even just uh, refinancing your existing mortgage. Count on the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage to get you the loan you need without delay. You can just go to my show notes, thebrianheidshow.com. There's an email link to contact Heather directly. All right. So I I know I'm sounding like a radical. I get it. I feel like a radical for even suggesting these things. And yet I feel like this is important because right now the rage that is being focused against the holdouts, the people who refuse to comply, presumes that the only reason that anybody could possibly have for not complying is ignorance, stupidity, foolishness, idiocy. I mean, it's it's never that you could have a valid reason for saying, you know, I don't feel this is in my best interest. Or maybe I don't even need to offer an explanation of why. I just simply will not be forced into doing something against my will. So for the record, I'll tell you, I am unvaccinated. I believe I had COVID last October, and it was an unpleasant experience, but it wasn't a life-threatening experience. It was just, it was a couple weeks of extreme fatigue and some fevers and aches, and I did have some some respiratory issues, but uh, they actually cleared up pretty quickly. For me, the hardest part was the brain fog and the fatigue that went along with it. Since that time, my immune system has actually been very robust, so I'm a believer in natural immunity. But even that's not the excuse why I'm refraining from the uh, the vaccine. Pure and simple, the reason that I am a holdout is because I will not be forced against my will. And I know people say, well, it's for your own good, and you're just being selfish. And I know they've been conditioned to view 
A person who understands his or her rights and is willing to stand up for those rights as being selfish. But if you don't learn what your rights are, if you don't claim them, use them, and defend them, you will lose them. So I'm simply doing what is necessary and encouraging you weigh this out for yourself. And if you feel as I do, be willing to stand, be willing to be the unpopular person. It's just crazy, though, the, the lengths to which people are going to to force these issues. I want to shift gears here for a moment. And, uh, you know, kids, this is one of the, the places where we're seeing it right now is um, kids are kind of becoming a uh, uh, political pawn, if you will, uh, a bit of leverage where we're being told, well, we've got to vaccinate, we've got to mask the kids. And this is being pushed by some health officials, it's being pushed by some teachers union officials. I have a hard time believing that uh, whatever it is that's brought these two groups together on the same page is in my best interest, mainly because I've paid attention to what the teachers' unions have stood for and advocated for. For about the last 10 years, I've paid real close attention. My wife is a public school teacher, but she has wisely um, refrained from, from becoming a member of a teachers' union because there were things she just cannot agree with. So when it comes to back to school... I mean, we're seeing a couple of good stories here and there. I know in Salt Lake City yesterday, um, the school board there actually voted down a school district-wide mask mandate for kids. That was a huge victory that came about because parents stood up and said, no more. Frankly, I think with with the writing that I see on the wall right now, if if you're not seriously considering pulling your kids out of school, you, you may want to take a closer look. But... I want to share a piece with you from Carrie McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education. Why you should redshirt your kindergartner this year. And this is in relation to some of the, the different political maneuverings that are taking place around public schools. And what a lot of parents are starting to feel um, is, is a call to look at alternative options. Carrie McDonald says, as back to school season gets underway, many parents are wondering what to do. Changing CDC guidelines, regular quarantines of entire classrooms due to possible virus exposure, ongoing virus concerns, battles about school masking policies are causing parents to second guess sending their children into a classroom this fall. And she says this is especially true for parents of rising kindergartners. On Saturday, the New York Times reported on the kindergarten exodus that occurred last year as over one million students avoided enrolling at a local district school. Nearly 350,000 of them were kindergartners whose parents decided to avoid early school enrollment and keep their children at home. This trend appears to be continuing this fall as parents delay their child's school entry, often known as redshirting. Now, the term redshirting is used in college sports to refer to the practice of athletes opting out of a year of competition to allow them an extra year of athletic eligibility while gaining skills and strength. Kindergarten redshirting is when parents forego school enrollment until their children are older, and the pandemic response seems to be accelerating the practice. Kindergarten registrations are down in many places this year, including one school district highlighted by the New York Times that began the new school year on August 3rd with 42% fewer kindergartners than in 2019. I mean, that's a pretty noticeable dent. So while the Times laments this kindergarten exodus, asserting there is no great substitute for quality in-person kindergarten, 
Kerry says some research suggests otherwise. In 2018, for example, Harvard researchers found that early school enrollment was correlated with higher diagnosis of and treatment for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, especially among boys. The researchers analyzed data from the states with a September 1st kindergarten enrollment age cutoff date, finding that the youngest children in the kindergarten class were much more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than the older children in the class. Indeed, the newly minted five-year-olds with August birthdays were 30% more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than those children who were born in September and were about to turn six. So the Harvard researchers concluded it is possible that younger children within a grade cohort may be more likely to receive a diagnosis of ADHD than older children in the same grade because inattentive behavior that is developmentally determined may be attributed to ADHD rather than to younger age. That's in the New England Journal of Medicine paper. So it doesn't take a Harvard degree to recognize this, says Kerry McDonald. Any parent of young children knows what a big difference a year can make in early childhood. A fresh five-year-old is much less likely to sit still and pay attention in a classroom than a new six-year-old. The Harvard researchers pointed out that teachers and other school staff are generally the ones to first label a child as having ADHD, not parents or physicians. Now, what's normal developmental behavior for a young child can quickly become pathologized in today's kindergarten classrooms. She says the situation has only worsened over the past two decades as rigid curriculum frameworks and frequent standardized testing have infiltrated public schools. Stemming from federal No Child Left Behind legislation signed by President Bush in 2002 and reauthorized by President Barack Obama in 2010, one-size-fits-all curriculum and testing have become commonplace in the nation's schools. This has led to changes in academic practices and expectations that can be detrimental, particularly for younger children. For instance, she says there's now widespread curriculum expectation that kindergartners should be reading, reading rather, and if they're not, they may be labeled as delayed. Teachers have rapidly responded to these arbitrary changing expectations in a paper titled, Is Kindergarten the New First Grade? University of Virginia researchers found that in 1998, 31% of teachers expected children to learn to read in kindergarten. By 2010, 80% of teachers expected this. Redshirting your kindergartner may be beneficial, she says, particularly if your child may be among the youngest in the class or is otherwise not yet developmentally ready to sit still and do academic work in a formal classroom. With the added uncertainty of coronavirus-related school policies, this fall may be a particularly good time to keep your kids home and find other options for their education. In fact, Kerry says the Associated Press recently reported that many millions of many of the millions of parents who chose homeschooling last year due to school shutdowns and related policies now are opting to homeschool their children even as schools plan to resume in-person classes. I don't know what uh, concerns you have either for your kids or your grandkids. But Kerry McDonald makes a pretty strong case that uh, it's okay to opt out of the public school system or to delay entry into that system. Something to think about. I've got a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Check it out for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. In keeping with the uh, commentary on kids... I wanted to share with you a commentary I found on the Foundation for Economic Education's website from John Miltimore. This is from a couple of days ago. Eight things children are more likely to die from than COVID-19, according to the CDC. I know this sounds kind of, we want to talk about things that kids are likely to die from. Brian, what what gives? Well, I I guess I'm offering this as kind of an antidote to the idea that the, the people who are so absolutely wound up and angry... At the holdouts who haven't had the vaccine yet are also setting their sights on forcing vaccines for kids. In fact, they're pushing very hard for a vaccine approved for kids under 12 years of age. And I'll admit, I don't I don't get why this push is is so strong. I mean, the the whole overall push, everybody, everybody has to get the vaccine. And yet, you know, if you look at uh, who is really at risk I mean, among adults, just the, the population in general, 99.7% of the people who contract coronavirus will survive. You get infected with COVID, you still have a very, very good chance of surviving it. Now, the complications get worse the older you are and the more comorbidities you have to deal with. Kids, statistically, almost never catch it or die from it. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't catch it. But when they do, typically it's quite mild. And of course, there may be some outliers and maybe kids who have, you know, immune system problems or something like that. Why do we need to push for a vaccine? John Miltimore says, last week I received a letter from my children's school district. We will start the school year this fall in person five days a week, strongly recommending that all students and staff in our buildings, regardless of vaccination status, wear face coverings. That's Lisa Sales Adams, superintendent of East Carver County Schools in Minnesota, who said at this time we are not requiring face coverings. And John Miltimore says, well, that was welcome news. He says, my children, like most, I imagine, have expressed their dislike for wearing masks all day long, which was the practice last school year when the school was open. They struggled all year with COVID-19 protocols. In fact, he says, this summer, my son said he was enjoying school much more and his enjoyment was visible. So John asked him about it. His son told him, we don't have to wear masks now. Now, John Miltimore says, I understand masks are a sensitive issue, as are the many topics surrounding COVID-19. Many people have died during the pandemic. Some continue to die today, though far fewer, despite the proliferation of vaccines and natural immunity. But he says the reality is it's an undisputed fact that children have the least to fear from the coronavirus. As a recent New York Magazine article made clear, in fact, they're more likely to die from the flu. Journalist David Wallace-Wells said the kids are safe. They always have been. It may sound strange given a year of panic over school closures and reopenings, in a year of masking toddlers and closing playgrounds and huddling in pandemic pods, that according to the CDC, among children, the mortality risk from COVID-19 is actually lower than the flu. He continued, the risk of severe disease or hospitalization is about the same. 
This is true for the much-worried-over Delta variant. It's also true for all the other variants and for the original strain. Most remarkably, it has been known to be true since the very earliest days of the pandemic. Indeed, it was among the very first things we did know about the disease. The preliminary mortality data from China was very clear. To children, COVID-19 represented only a vanishingly tiny threat of death, hospitalization, or severe disease. Now, as Wallace Wells makes clear, John Miltimore writes, these are the government's own numbers, and the information isn't new. Months earlier, the New York Times published a graph based on CDC data showing all the things children were more likely to die of than COVID-19. Drowning, vehicle accidents, homicide, cancer, cardiovascular disease, and suffocation are all more likely to kill children under the age of 15 than COVID-19. By the way, for children ages 5 to 14, suffocation is a tie. Meanwhile, suicide is far likelier to claim the life of a child over the age of 4 than COVID-19, according to the CDC. The point here that John Miltimore is making is too many politicians and media are spreading fear, panic, and misinformation. Leave the kids alone, he says. They have the least to fear from the virus. And he has the graph to, to back this up here. John Miltimore says, look, we live in a world with numerous threats. It's easy to forget that COVID-19 is just one of them. Americans are divided over the best way to combat the virus, and the disagreements dominate our discussions and news. He says many seem intent on trying to eradicate the virus. That is, to borrow the words of Stanford University professor of medicine Jay Bhattacharya and George Mason University economist Donald J. Boudreaux, a dangerous and costly fantasy. Miltimore says efforts to eradicate COVID-19 through coercive means have wrought great damage. And these harms are so vast and so visible that it's easy to overlook the harms these policies have inflicted on our children, scholastically, emotionally, and mentally, even though they have almost nothing to fear from it. And he says this must end. Now he says my school superintendent just made the right call. COVID-19 is a deadly virus, but it's just one of many threats humans face in a complicated and dangerous world. Any parents seeking to protect their children from COVID-19 should, of course, be free to do so. But he says making vaccinations and masks optional mitigations isn't just the proper policy. It is the morally imperative one. Because he says voluntary action is always better than coercion. And it remains the best way to defeat COVID-19. He actually has a tweet here from Phil Kirpin, which says, We have a full year of data showing no benefit to student masking. Amazing to see an irrational fear panic push this intrusive, destructive measure on children again anyway. And look, if this makes me a conspiracy theorist to, to nod my head in agreement, so be it. I will wear the label proudly. But I look at uh, the images of the kids all lined up or separated in their little cubicles and properly distanced and wearing their masks. And to me, it, it is such a dystopian image. I honestly can't imagine how someone could look at that and not recognize, oh, yeah, that's that's serious conditioning. That is conditioning people to become followers Submissive followers waiting to do what they're told. Stand here. Wear this. Look there. Don't be this close. You know, 
It's, it's governing every aspect of their little lives. And maybe it would make some sense if the kids actually were at risk from the virus. Statistically, though, their risk is so small as, as to be almost non-existent. Now, of course, I have to, you know, in the interest of humility and in the interest of just my own fallibility, I have to admit, I could be dead wrong. But from the very beginning, the masking in particular has felt to me more like a test of let's see who will comply and who won't. Now, there are some exceptions here. Visiting an elderly loved one, for instance, if they say, I would feel better if everybody wore a mask. Okay, given that they are at the greatest risk, absolutely. But as you're probably picking up, my my biggest beef is always going to be, it's when the mask comes with a mandate, when it comes with some form of coercion. Whether that's just a strongly worded sign or whether that's people following you around, hounding you because you're not wearing the mask. To me, then, it seems like this is more of a, a token of compliance or a badge of compliance. See, I'm a good person. And yet I'm not sure that's, that's what the mask is saying at all. I mean, it's saying you're an obedient person. And perhaps there's, there's some virtue to be found in obedience. But, you know, at the risk of, you know, bursting your bubble here, um, you know, ugly things that have been carried out throughout history... The Holodomor, the deliberate starving of millions of people in the Ukraine because they wouldn't get on board with what Stalin told them to do. Do you know why that happened? Do you know how it was carried out? It was carried out by obedient people carrying out Stalin's orders. The Kulaks, who were starved to death, yeah, they were the disobedient. But that's why we had to starve them, is for their own good. Obedience is not the same thing as being a good person. You're not doing your part for society by submitting to what could be an unreasonable demand. That's a decision each one of us has to make at an individual level. This is why you should be on a pretty familiar, you know, relationship with your conscience. So your conscience isn't shocked when you walk up and say, hey, what should I do here? This is The Brian Hyde Show.